Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the elders down at our uh, sister church in Glenelg. And it is really a privilege uh, to be here again with this family, with your family uh, tonight. And we are, we, well, we need to talk. Um, we've been needing to talk for a few weeks now. Um, and so we're going to talk tonight about a different topic altogether. We're going to talk about the environment or God's creation, beautiful creation around us, about climate change, about the hope of renewal. Um, before we do that, um, I was looking at uh, Jacko's uh, PowerPoint from last week, and he, re- he had some good book recommendations for the topic he looked at last week. So I've just got one, actually, he, and he gave it to me, so I'm getting this from Jacko, and I'm going to pass it on to you. It's this little book called Is God Green by Lionel Windsor. It's just 10 bucks, 9.99. in fact, at uh, Kurong. I, a lot of what I'm saying has actually been kind of based on what's here. It's, it's much more articulate here, so uh, maybe you can leave now and just get the book if you like. But I'm going to pray after that amazing self-introduction, and, and, and then we're going to jump into the Word tonight. All right, so why don't you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you that we have an opportunity to gather around your Word and by your gracious Spirit learn the truth that you would have to teach us tonight. Lord, I pray that you would speak through my words and speak to our hearts, open our ears, that we might see and hear and believe and then go and do uh, the wonderful things in your word. And we pray this by Jesus, in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Well, um, the first thing we need to get through is you're going to have to suffer a bit, uh, suffer an American talking a little bit or just waxing on uh, Australian politics. Uh, I didn't vote in the election. There was an election just a couple weeks ago, in case you didn't know that. And so you, you can't blame me for the result, if you're, whether you're happy about it or not. Um, in the federal election just gone, most media predicted that one of the most significant factors in the outcome of that election would be the Australian public's opinions and fears and hopes about climate change. Some even in the media referred to this as the climate change election. And as a result, most people tipped that the Labor Party would win the election because of the concern of impending doom. But it turns out that many of these predictions were not entirely accurate. And lots of people subsequently have speculated on why that might be, why the polls got it wrong. And it turns out that there are at least two people I found on the Internet who, who usually don't agree on much, They do agree on this, so I thought I'd share that uh, with you. One of those men is a fairly well-known progressive uh, media personality by the name of Waleed Ali, who is on the project. He had this to say in the Sydney Morning Herald. He said, it's clear that climate change as a moral issue is dead and will be for years to come. The alternative is to expect communities to vote for what they fear will be their own death. And that's a fanciful ask. That's one opinion. Second person is a man called Steve McAlpin. He's a conservative Christian pastor from Mountain WA, and he wrote this. Many a rusted-on ALP supporter went with the coalition because progressivism was a luxury item that they could not afford. Conservative policies were bread and butter. Progressive policies were chocolate and cheese. No one wants to reach the checkout with a trolley full of groceries and a maxed-out credit card. So in other words, according to both a progressive and a conservative 
Middle class and working Australians voted for the coalition largely because they reckoned that progressive policies to address climate change would hurt them where it counts, in the wallet. Now, I don't know if you agree with that analysis or not. I'm just putting it out there as what some people are saying out in our culture. It seems that some of us, for some of us, taking action, or especially taking drastic action to address climate change and conservation is a luxury that we can't afford. I came across another article recently, and this one from an entirely different perspective. This, came, this was in a Christian publication, Eternity Magazine. And in that publication, there's a Christian minister by the name of Jessica Morthorp, and she's trying to educate churches in how to care for people in our community who are in particularly concerned about or even very anxious about climate change. And she has this to say. She says, climate anxiety in our community has reached such a pitch that it's becoming the psychological equivalent of the Cold War for our times. But instead of fearing mutually assured destruction from nuclear warheads, The feared catastrophe of our generation is the survival of the planet from climate change. Again, I, I'm not saying that I agree or disagree with that statement, but it is certainly a shared opinion of many of our fellow Australians. For, for these folks, the fear isn't the loss of jobs or the rise of electricity prices from green policies, but rather it's the fear that if we don't do enough now to curb climate change, that the devastating impacts will be irreversible. And those who suffer the most are those who are least able to speak for themselves, those being the global poor and future generations. That's why people are, want to see... Or who, That's why people see protecting the environment and climate change as a moral issue. Remember what Walid Ali said. He said climate, issue, climate change as a moral issue is dead. But there are still many people in our country, in our culture, that see climate change as a pressing moral issue. It's not just a luxury item for the rich, but it's something that impacts on the survival of humanity itself. People are scared. Some of our neighbors are scared that radical green policies might cost jobs and drive up prices. Other people are scared that the earth is heating up so quickly that life as we know it is coming to an end. So the question I have for us tonight is how do we love our neighbors in the midst of this climate without getting caught up in all the political drama and the name calling? We need to talk. We need to talk about why people are scared and how we should respond. But before we get to those practical questions, I want to talk to us tonight about our relationship with the environment itself. What does the Bible have to teach us about creation? Because sometimes I, I think that we as Christians can get this a bit wrong. The very first verse in the Bible says that in the beginning, God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth, before the first humans came on the scene. And God said that it was good in and of itself. But instead of looking at Genesis 1 and 2 tonight, which we could do, beautiful text, I'm going to look at another part of the Bible that is a retelling, a poetic retelling of the creation story. So if you like poetry, you'll like the text tonight. It's, it's in the, it, one of the Psalms. Psalm 104. Psalm 104. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Psalm 104. I'm going to go through it bit by bit because it's quite long. And we're just going to go through it one section at a time. And I'll make a few comments as we go. 
And then we'll get to addressing some of the problems in our thinking and, and, and some practical steps we can take towards loving our neighbors and caring for creation. So let's start with verse 1. My soul bless the Lord. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind, and making the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. What's the theme of this whole song, this whole long poem? It's this. It's that God is great. God is worthy of worship. And how do we know this? How do I know this? How do you know this? Well, just look at what he's made, and you'll know. Think about the most decadent display of wealth that you've ever seen. Maybe it was a, a royal wedding or, a, you know, celebrities on the red carpet. God doesn't need to go shopping to impress us. He doesn't need clothing and jewels. Why? Because he's got the sun. He's got the sky spread out like a canopy, it says. He's got the, the roar of the wind, the orange and the blue and the green colors of fire. That's his display. That's how God exits his chariot on the red carpet, as you like, that we might see him and sing. Think about the opposite of these verses for a minute. Think about wrapping yourself in darkness, what that would indicate. Uh, we lived in China for seven years, many of you know this, and every winter, every, the whole city, all the cities would start burning coal, and as a result, you would get images like you'll see on this slide above. Um, two pictures, top and bottom, same place, same perspective, just on different days. And we were quite used to this. We'd quite, quite, you know, wake up one winter morning and you'd see what was up, up there at the top. You look out the window and that's about what you would see, just gray smog as far as you could see. And then the next, very next day or sometimes overnight, the wind would change direction. It would come from the north off the Mongolian uh, deserts and just blow all the smog out to sea. And it was like the sun came out again for the very first time. I can remember bringing our kids back to Australia after, you know, uh, going through a winter like that, and they would be outside and they just couldn't handle the sun because they weren't used to it being so bright. See, the sky is, according to Psalm 104, it's the canopy of, of God's glory. It's beautiful and it's, it's meant to be. There's something about seeing a bright blue sky that is meant to draw our hearts into worship. It's God's splendor. And yet, there are days and, and places and times when God's splendor can be hidden by human activity. Let's move on to verse 5. Verse 5, he established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. As I said, this psalm is a retelling of the creation story. The section before, verses 1 to 4, it's, it's roughly covering the first two days of creation where God said, let there be light, and then he separated the expanse above from the expanse below. Now the psalmist is going to move on to the creation of the land itself and the oceans on the third day, 
of creation. So here in verse 5, he establishes the land, the earth. Verse 6, he covers it with oceans. Verses 7 and 9, it says he rebukes or he orders the water to stay in its place. Verse 8, he establishes the mountains. See, not only does everything that God makes display his glory, we see here that he is directing it all like a conductor conducts an orchestra. Nothing happens in creation outside of his control. And keep in mind, this psalm is written after the fall. The, the, the one who wrote this psalm is familiar with storms and tsunamis and earthquakes and devastating floods. And yet he believes, as do we, that everything that happens in creation is under the sovereign control of God. One of the effects of climate change, as you know, is rising sea levels. And that is certainly a cause for concern. It's something that scientists and the general public alike should be discussing and thinking about solutions. But we have to keep in mind that not even that happens outside of God's sovereign control. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10, he causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. So we see creation displays God's glory, and he directs it for his purposes. What else does he do? Well, here he distributes necessities to the animals. See, we tend to think that these creatures wouldn't last long if there weren't humans around to protect them. And yet here we see God is the one who cares for them. He made them without our help. He cares for them without our help. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God gave us the task to care for the things he made, but it's a delegated task. It was his task. He delegates it to us. Here, before a single human is on the scene, God is working to provide water to the animals. He cares for them all. Even the feral cat that squats in our backyard and poops in our herb garden, he cares for that as well. I know we're all supposed to love creation, but I do have limits. God does not. Moving on, verse 14. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil, and bread that sustains human hearts. The trees of the Lord flourish, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, storks make their homes in the pine trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the cliffs are a refuge for hyraxes. So finally here in verse 14, the first humans are on the scene. They are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are the only uh, creatures made in his image, and God provides for them too. The crops that we see here aren't just a result of human ingenuity and technology. They are a gift from God, just like water for the animals is a gift from God. But notice here, God doesn't just give us the things that we need, like the bare necessities, and that's enough. The rest of you can now fend for yourselves. Here, we see God giving us things like wine and oil for the face. These are things we don't need. These are luxury items. The bread that he gives isn't just to fill our stomachs so that we don't starve, but the bread here is bread that sustains the heart, that makes the heart glad. 
God gives all of this to us because he delights in his creation. He lavishes gifts on everything he has made. He delights to give good gifts. Isn't that good news? Jesus says this very thing in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew 7. God is the Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. And here in this creation psalm, it says the whole earth is safe and the whole earth is satisfied by the goodness of God and the generous toil of God on the behalf of what he's made. Again, back at the very beginning, before there was sin and evil in the world, God told the very first humans to subdue and have dominion over the earth. And there's some conversation over what that means. We know that it cannot, what it cannot mean. For us to have dominion over the, ter- over the earth cannot mean for us to exploit and use and harm the things that he's made. Because right here in this text, we see the way that God himself cares for creation, and he is the one who delegates us to care for creation in the same way that he does. Not to exploit and use up, but to lavish generous gifts on that creation so that it will continue to be a source of life and abundance for all creation to enjoy. He doesn't just provide the bare necessities. Not everything he gives is for survival. Most of it is for joy. Think about a place like Uluru here in Australia, or maybe the Grand Canyon in America. There are not very many crops that grow in those places. We don't even mine these places for minerals. So why do they exist? Why did God make a place like that? Is it not just for us and to, to enjoy and, and, and delight in the sheer grandeur and majesty of God, the one who made a place like that? In a utilitarian world, a place like that is a, is a wasteland. It's useless. And yet millions of humans flock there every single year to be reminded of how small they are and how beautiful creation is. And these are gifts that we need. God doesn't hold back in giving. I wonder if we delight in creation the way that he does. Not worshiping creation as some sort of divine thing, but delighting in it as a gift from the hand of the divine. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark the festivals. The sun knows when to set. You bring darkness and it becomes night when all the forest animals stir. The young lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, they go back and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to labor until evening. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships move about, and Leviathan, which you formed to play there. This section of Psalm 104 is about limitations. Creation reminds us every single day that we, you and I, are limited and that God is unlimited. Creation demonstrates that he's big and that we're small. We see this here in poetic language. We are limited as creatures by the turning of the earth and its 
rotation and revolution around the sun. We're limited by days and seasons. We're limited by darkness and by cold winters. The animals here are active at night. They, they remind us that all creatures are dependent not on their own five senses to survive, but on God. And we are the same. We all live and play by the rules and the laws of nature that He's designed for our good. Take God out of the picture and nothing can be sustained. The plants and animals that we depend on don't belong to us. They're His. We're stewards. Even the ships on the ocean and the planes in the air, they share space with the fish and the birds that He made to inhabit those spaces. And all of it demonstrates His bigness, His wisdom that is unsearchable. If you look at the creation, you will see the Creator. As Romans 1 says, God's invisible power can be seen in what he's made. And what we see is that he's not limited by the sun. He can work at night. He's not limited by capacity. His works are, as it says, countless. He's not limited by space. What he creates is vast and wide. All of creation is a sermon preaching to us the greatness of God. Verse 27. All of them wait for you to give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your breath, they are created, and you renew the surface of the ground. See, creation depends on God to survive and be sustained. And we've seen this implicitly. Now here it is explicit. Without God providing food and the breath of life, everything, including us, dies. And again, he's giving more than just the bare necessities. We need more than just the bare necessities. More than just the gifts, we need the giver himself. And when the giver hides his face, all the creatures here, it says, are terrified because we're left to our own devices to fend for ourselves. But with his breath, His spirit comes life and renewal. Verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they pour out smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice in the Lord. May sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. My soul bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Here at the end of the psalm, we come back to the central purpose. When you look at creation, when you think about how big it is and how beautiful it is, how powerful it is, you can't help but sing praise to the one who made it. You can't help but be swept up into joy. There's just one final thing to point out, and it's there in the last verse, in verse uh, 35. The psalmist prays this prayer for the wicked, the evil people in, in creation to disappear. As beautiful and majestic as all of it is, something's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But we live in hope that one day, one day God will come and he will deliver not just his people, but all of creation from the stain and curse of sin. That's our hope. How do we know that? Well, Paul picks up on this point in Romans 8. You might be familiar with this passage. It's Romans 8, verse 19 and 21. I don't have that on the screen, but just listen listen in here. Paul writes, 
for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. The, cre the creation is waiting on us. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him, it's God, who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also, along with us, be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. See, your hope, the hope of the gospel, is, is, is the hope of all creation being renewed and restored. God in Christ will rescue you from death and bring you to life, and He will rescue creation from futility into a restored beauty and wholeness. The trees, the animals, and the plants, they're all waiting to break out into song together with the church to praise the Lord. May His glory endure forever. And because of Jesus, our Savior, we know that it will. So what's the message of Psalm 104? Creation, the environment, the universe around us is the canvas for God to display His glory. We benefit from the creation. Yes, that is surely true. But before we humans were even on the scene, creation was singing the praises of God. Even now, do you, do you stop to think about how much of God's creation no human has ever laid eyes on, much less actually inhabited that space? Scientists that are way smarter than me actually debate how big the universe is. They don't really know. It's two trillion galaxies. That's the best guess. They don't know how big it is because when they look into electromagnetic telescopes, this is from what I understand, like you can't tell if what they're looking at is the furthest uh, point in the universe or if it's light signals that have circumnavigated the universe and are being reflected back to us from different points in their, in their life cycle. And so we can't actually know how big the universe is. It has been said that we have, as a human race, mapped about 5% of the ocean floor. 5%. No human being has ever set foot on Mars or in the core of the earth. If you think about the percentage of God, what God has made that human beings have seen with their eyes or touched with their hands, it is infinitely small. And yet all of it sings his praise. Every single one of the stars in that universe, Isaiah 40 says, God knows them by name. All of it was made and will be remade according to his perfect design. So who am I and who are you to rubbish what he's made? Who am I to treat it with contempt? Who am I to use it as if my personal benefit or my personal comfort is the only thing that matters? Instead, shouldn't I approach it and treat God's creation with fear and trembling, not because creation itself is worthy to be worshipped, but because He is. So let me suggest four ways that I think Christians can err in thinking about creation care and then humbly suggest some practical way forward. First way of erring is what we call zero-sum thinking, and we, I think we talked about this a little bit when we talked about politics we can mix up our mandate to care for creation, to be good stewards of creation with the tribalism of politics in 2019. And when we succumb to this way of thinking, 
It's a way of thinking that says that if I concede a point to someone over there, then I'm automatically taking a point away from this side over here. So like if I say that maybe, let's say the Greens have a good idea when it comes to, you know, getting rid of plastic straws or something, that I'm taking away a point from this side over here. And, and, and it's this zero-sum thinking that causes people not to be able to hear each other and listen to each other because they're always thinking that I, if, if you win, then I lose. It's hard to believe these days, but I want to say it. I want to remind us that it's okay to not have a strong opinion about something. It's okay to admit what you don't know and to be able to listen to people who know more than you do about a particular topic. See, our main work is not to simply have an opinion, but it's to persuade. And, and more than to persuade, it's to love. And so, when Christians are out there in the public square or on social media, shaming or humiliating or yelling at people, it's, it's really not a good look. And, and more than not being a good look, it's actually contradictory to what we claim to believe in, in the God that we claim to worship. So that's one way of, wrong way of thinking. Another wrong way of thinking is what I'm going to call under-realized eschatology, and that's a mouthful, and so let me explain what I mean by that. Um, it's when we don't recognize that the blessings of the kingdom of God are already here. Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the, the, the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you, that the kingdom of God is already here among us, and so we can, as the people, as citizens of the kingdom of God, actually live out, in, live in such a way in anticipation of what we will be. We know that creation right now is still under the curse, but we can live as people, as individuals, and as a people that look forward to the day, that hope for the day when creation will be restored and we can live as such, and we can create a, a, a preview, a foretaste of what is yet to come. Think about the language that God uses in the end of the Bible, in Revelation, to describe our hope. He, 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 the voice of Jesus is there, Revelation 21, and here's what he says. He says, look, I am making everything new. There is an element of judgment to come, where, where, there's a, where there's fire and there's a, there's a judgment and there's a purging of creation from sin and evil, but it's not total destruction. There's judgment and there's also renewal. Look, I'm making everything new. I, I, I think I, I heard when I was a kid growing up, I heard more about the judgment, that everything's just going to burn. So why, why does it matter? Let's just focus on you know, personal salvation and, and, and the gospel and going to heaven and, and who cares about anything else. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the world is being made new, that, you know, the, the, the new heavens and the new earth, talking, there's that image of the, you know, the, the footpaths being paved with gold. So if, if that's the case, imagine what the canyons and the waterfalls and the planets will look like in that new heavens and the new earth. It's the way things we're meant to be, and it's the way things will be. This is a biblical promise. See, our hope is not simply in creating for ourselves a carbon-neutral, waste-free utopia here and now, but one day that will be the case. 
So now, let's be people of hope. Let's work to love our neighbors by sharing the gospel of hope, and let's work to love our neighbors by caring well for our shared space so that our actions make gospel proclamation both believable and compelling. Third error that we can fall into is the opposite of that. It's, a, it's an over-realized eschatology. It's this idea that all the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth should be ours now. We just have to kind of grab onto them and make them come true here and now. There's a problem with that. I, I think that we are here in 2019, we are living at one of the most peaceful and prosperous times in human history. Life expectancy has never been longer. Um, the, the likelihood of of, of moms dying in childbirth has never been lower. Most, I don't know, I don't think maybe, I don't know if any of you in this room have ever had to worry about being forcibly drafted into a war. And we start to think that this is how it's supposed to be. We kind of earned the right to live in this time in history. We, we deserve this. None of us has ever experienced a famine or a a plague. Isn't this the abundant life that God promised? It's heaven on earth. This week I, I came across a quote from a pastor in the States who I think unintentionally highlighted this problem. And I want, to, I want you to listen to what she says, and it's up on the screen. She says this. She says, there's this little passage in the Gospel of John that continues to stay with me. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Greek word that's used there for life abundance is the word zoe, which means not just that you are living and breathing, but that God's plan for our lives is to actually have a meaningful life with loving contentment and satisfaction. Now, I think a lot of us can read those words and go, oh yeah, that sounds okay. But it all depends on what you mean by the term, the expression, to have a meaningful life. The question is, where does that meaning come from? Who defines meaning? Who defines purpose? Is it something that we define for ourselves based on the comforts and luxuries that we enjoy? Or is it something that God himself defines for us? I want to tell you the context of this quote. This particular person was using this quote in the middle of a larger argument to, to explain why abortion is a moral good. Why it's part, how it's part of this vision of the abundant life. That God's idea for you is for you to have total control over your body and over your own destiny in such a way that nothing can get in the way of that, even another human life. That's a dangerous moral vision, but it's one that when we take Scripture and twist it just a little bit, it's a problem. Now, why am I talking about this here? I've included this here because I think the logic that she employs in the question of abortion, many of us also employ when it comes to caring for creation. We, we listen to some of the more dire predictions of what will happen to creation if we don't change our behavior when it comes to consumption and the use of fossil fuels, and we start to get defensive, and we start to think, no, that could never happen. 
You, you can't expect me to change my lifestyle. You can't expect me to stop eating meat. I mean, come on. Like, you can't expect me to make these kinds of changes. You can't expect me to go spend an extra couple of dollars for organic food. We start to get very defensive about these. And, and listen, I'm not arguing for one thing or the other. I think there's, you know, we need to do our research on this stuff. What I'm pushing back against is this sort of inherent defensiveness that I think comes from a place of entitlement more than wisdom, that we're entitled to the lifestyle that we have now. Therefore, climate change can't be real because I'm happy. Do do, do you see the problem with that? I think that... um, we need to be aware of what, you know, this under-realized eschatology in our hearts that it's all going to burn anyway, so let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, as well as this over-realized eschatology, this, you know, I'm a child of the king. I'm entitled to all this and more. I deserve it. And then the fourth thing, the fourth trap to avoid is, I guess, thinking that it's all too hard and just doing nothing. And many of us find ourselves there, and I want to push against that. And you think some of us find ourselves there in this doing nothing because we're like, well, I don't know what I can do. I can't move the scale, tip the scales of as one person on climate change. So what can I do? Well, I think we can help one another by suggesting some practical changes and ideas. And I want to give you a few simple things to start with. Um, Number one, and this may seem kind of counterintuitive to this discussion, but preach the gospel to yourself. Sounds a bit strange in this topic about creation care, but see, the gospel story begins and ends with a perfect, restored creation that reflects perfectly the glory of God. And we Christians are a people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven, our stains have been removed, and our hope involves living together forever with God and his people in the new earth. Gospel people are a hopeful people. So we want to live like people who are actually looking forward to that perfect and restored creation, not like people whose only hope is living the good life now. Number two, let's do our best to get informed and then act accordingly. Listen to people who are smarter than you. And that, for me, that's a lot of people down at City Light Glen Elk, we have people who actually, you know, work in these fields for a living. We've got plenty of people that we can learn from. It doesn't mean we'll have to agree with them on everything. We have to use our own wisdom and judgment. But when we disagree, let's do so in love and with good faith. Don't just stick your head in the sand because you are afraid you might have to change your habits. Be willing to admit when you're wrong about something and be willing to embrace costly change. Remember the Christian life, Jesus uses a metaphor of taking up your cross, self-denial. Beware of this defensiveness that comes from a place of unwillingness to deny the self. Number three, listen to your neighbors. Listen to their fears and concerns. Earlier, I gave you the quote of, that said that a lot of young people are very, very anxious about climate change. They're our neighbors, and Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. People who don't have the hope of Jesus might even be wrestling with fear or despair on these issues. I mean, I remember vividly as a young person, I was working in a camera shop, and I had a lady came in, and she had, this was back in the day when you had to get your you know, pictures developed, 
and she was getting her, her, her photos back, and she looked, and she had an entire roll of 24 pictures of her grandson uh, playing with the, in, in snow. And she was almost in tears when she saw these photos. She said, I just wanted to take these because I know when he's an adult, there's, this is, he just won't have this. This will all be gone. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but she certainly believed that. How do you, how do you love someone in that scenario? How do you have empathy? What do you do? I'm not proposing a solution, but I think it's something we do need to think about. Number four, join in what's already happening in your community, the good things. There's a lot of good things that we can get on board with. Maybe you live in a community that is all about environmental action and being green and organic, so find ways you can partner with people in your community. Talk about the one who made it all as the reason why you're doing it. Maybe your community is totally apolitical. You, don't, you could care less and is uninterested in big-picture topics like climate change. Well, maybe you can find common ground with people by just being outside and enjoying nature. Go, go camping, go hiking, go fishing, and talk about the one who made it. It's great ways to get time with people and point them to the source of the beauty that is all around them. I, I want to say tonight, if you're here, and you're not a Christian, if this is all a bit weird to you, thank you for coming. Um, maybe you haven't yet heard about or you haven't trusted in Jesus as the creator and savior of the world. I, I, I want to tell you that you can do that now. I, I can go so far as to say that one of the most environmentally friendly things that any human being can ever do is to receive the spirit of the Lord Jesus as a gift, as a free gift. He's the one who made it. He knows how to care for it better than any of us, better than any of our experts. He's the one who will remake it to work in perfect harmony. To become a Christian, you just start by admitting that you've run away from him, you've resisted him, you, you've turned your own way to live your own way no matter what, and believe that God loves you anyway, that God ha has a love that's higher and deeper and wider than the universe, so much that he sent his own son Jesus to die in your place so that you could be forgiven of sin and raised to new life. Christians aren't perfect people. They are resurrection people, people who wait and groan along with creation for the beauty that will be unleashed when Jesus comes back. This inheritance belongs to everyone who believes in him, and it's a free gift. God delights to give good gifts to those who ask. If you are a Christian tonight, then please remember who you are. That's why we take communion every week, which we're going to do in just a moment. You are, you are a new creation. You represent the king here, and now you're a citizen of his kingdom. You're an ambassador of that future reality where the curse is gone forever. So let's live like people looking forward to that day so the world can see in us and know that we belong to the one who made it all, the one who makes all things new. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your glory will endure forever. We want to rejoice in your works in all that you've made. 
Lord, you look at the earth and it trembles. You touch the mountains and they pour out smoke. So let us sing to you all of our lives while we still have time. Let our meditation, let our thoughts, let our songs, let our actions be pleasing to you. Help us to rejoice in you. Lord, may sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. But until that day, Lord, would you keep loving, keep pursuing, and help us to be your ambassadors of reconciliation to those who don't know you. Let us bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.